probably heard of citizen journalism by now. When regular people help report on events happening around them and share them with others. Maybe it's a photo or a video of a small or major event that is then shared and reshared by our social networks and even traditional media. But do you know what video activism is? Today's guest, Sharina answers that question for us. We recorded this interview at the end of June 2018. Sharin is a Turkish academic whose research focus is video activism. She discusses how it is used to fill the gap traditional media leaves behind, and how it helps to tell untold stories or untold versions of stories that are making headlines. Video activism, like most forms of protest in countries where speech is tightly controlled, comes with its own risks. Here she discusses the role of video activism in today's media context, her interest and motivation in the field, and the risks involved. I'm Yasmina Sakat, and you're listening to Not That Original, a podcast that brings you stories that may not be so different from your own. I'm Shirin, I'm Turkish. Uh, I live in Istanbul and have worked as an academic for nine years. Currently, uh, I am not working, but I'm a researcher and I research video activism specifically in Turkey, but also I look at the strategies and tactics of other video, group, video activist groups worldwide. What is video activism? Well, video activism in the context that I'm researching it is a tool for the documentation of social struggles of groups that are uh, considered othered by mainstream culture and media. So uh, it's their stories that are ignored, that are documented by video activist groups in order to create a counter-narrative to the official ideology perpetuated by governments and fortified by uh, their media. So it's a politically committed media practice that aims to follow through and cover uh, the demands of uh, marginalized groups within societies. Stories that are ignored by who? Stories that are ignored by the media and as an extension by society because they don't know of these things going on in the country or the societies that they live in. How is video activism different than citizen journalism? I mean, the, the lines are not like clearly demarcated, you know, the lines are blurred. Uh, but I guess you could say that video activists provide a platform for recordings uh, collected by citizen journalists to be broadcast. So mm -hmm. video activist collectives perhaps have a name that people know, and that's why they'll, they'll be more inclined to go to these platforms to watch uh, images there, as opposed to citizen journalism, citizen journalists that would just collect the images and diffuse it on their own personal online social media platforms. So I guess it's just a difference of systematic um, coverage and broadcasting. Is citizen journalism a response to video activism's complaint of traditional media, or do you think it's something completely different? No, both are user-generated uh, content that has been more and more possible with uh, the possibilities of technology, mm -hmm. so the fact that technology is more widespread and easier to use 
means that there are more and more citizen journalists around because yeah. anyone that witnesses something can record it and then broadcast it technically. Uh, but I would say that citizen journalism and video activism are uh, alternative media practices mm -hmm. and that they should be uh, considered in that sense. So like the production and the distribution means that they have uh, in their hands as opposed to traditional media as, where, as well as the power relations of uh, what it is that they're doing. So they're not operating within like traditional institutionalized professional Uh, media, uh, the mediascape, they're completely alternative and thus have their own uh, rules of operation. How did you get involved in video activism? What's your link? Okay, well, um, I come from documentary, so I've always been interested in using moving images to document and argue uh, certain cases. But uh, the instance where video activism became important on a more immediate and day-to-day -day basis was during the Gezi Park protests that took place in Istanbul in 2013, mm -hmm. where we were out on the streets, or rather we were out in a park, uh, trying to prevent the government from uh, tearing out the trees there because they wanted to build, I don't know, like a shopping mall uh, in, instead of uh, the park, okay. in the place of the park. And uh, while that was happening and the police was attacking protesters and, and all of that, the Turkish media failed to report on the events. Mm -hmm. And when they failed to report on the events and actually talk about what was happening to us, I decided to take my camera because I figured if they're not doing it, like someone has to. So there had to be a, a record of what was going on because those who were supposed to report on it were not reporting on it. So for me, video activism was just uh, a method to collect uh, the visual reality I was undergoing during that time. How has traditional media been failing you? Well, in the last 15 years, m media uh, has become more and more monopolistic in Turkey, mm -hmm. which means that uh, the companies or the, peop the individuals that own media channels or media networks also have other businesses that are affiliated with the government. Yeah. So in that sense, they have to keep their relations uh, on good terms so that their other businesses in finance or construction or you know, energy don't fail. So that creates a kind of a problem when it comes to uh, freedom of expression because these businesses auto-censor themselves so as to not offend the ruling party. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, then not everything that is going on within the country is reflected in that way. So whatever is reflected on television is what convenes to the ruling party. So in that sense, when we are being tear-gassed by the police and you know, trees are being burnt down and tents are being burnt down and people who haven't done anything are being detained and no one is talking about it on the, on the news, then that goes to show that the media is not doing its job. What is the objective of video activism for you? Well, first and foremost, it's obviously a method of documenting uh, systematic 
violence coming from police forces. Mm -hmm. So these images of violence have been and can be used in court cases later on, um, if especially the person is detained and uh, um, the case goes to court. But for me, it's uh, in the context of Turkey and in my own practice, it's a mean to create a visual memory of alternative histories um, of groups that are uh, deemed marginal by uh, the rest of society. And this is not just to create like a visual image of their struggles on the streets, but it's a, a struggle, it's a record of all their political demands. So this can be any kind of press statements, um, follow-up on court cases, commemoration ceremonies, so all activities that they undergo, they undergo to they undertake, sorry, to uh, make these demands visible. Okay. You've talked to me in the past about how the role of a video activist isn't just a show or raw event without context. You do actually go through your content and edit some of it, correct? Well, sometimes video activists do edit their uh, content. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't. It depends on the collective and the aim of that video. But usually, yes, uh, certain videos are edited in order to give context because just an image of a police beating up a protester doesn't mean anything without its context. You just see this image of violence, but you don't know why what is going on is happening. So in order to give uh, these images of most of the time violence uh, content, mm -hmm. uh, then you have to give background as to who the protester is and why they are in such a situation. What, it, what demands do they have that the police have to beat them so hard in order to silence them? So the editing in that sense is important to contextualize images that would otherwise not have an identity in the history of social struggles. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Gezi Park protests and the events that sort of led up to that happening? Well, Erdogan's regime has known to be, uh, is known to be an authoritarian regime. And, you know, there was general unhappiness regarding that and the limitations of certain lifestyles and freedoms. Yeah. But in 2013, um, he decided, so Gezi Park is one of the few remaining green spaces in Istanbul, which is more and more under, grow, under construction and growing. So all green spaces have been demolished in order to build more things on it. Um, and this was his intent with Gezi. He wanted to get rid of the park, which is just like a small park. It's not a big park. Uh, he wanted to get rid of the park in order to build like uh, the old military barracks that used to be there during the Ottoman Empire. And as a result of that, environmental activists who were already following his urban, urban development plans went to the park and set up 15 tents there to prevent this demolition from happening. And on the first night, these tents were burnt down by uh, undercover police officers. The next day, this event spread on social media and more and more people flocked to the park to protect the trees there. And, and as police violence grew and these images of police violence spread on social media, 
then people uh, decided to react against it. But it was completely from the news that they were hearing on social media platforms. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this, these events uh, were not on, on, broadcasted on uh, mainstream media. So it was really just a, you know, spontaneous citizen revolts against uh, you know, green values. What was the demographic makeup of the protesters? Uh, in the case of Istanbul, I would say it was uh, the middle class to the upper middle class uh, people. And for those people, so for us, it was a rude awakening because it was our first test where we were positioned as the evil ones, as the bad guys mm-hmm. in mainstream media. So we were treated as terrorists, for example, that we were called, the mainstream media called people in the park terrorists. So that made you start thinking about who had previously been called terrorists by the mainstream media. And it kind of put a lot of things into perspective in terms of the struggles and the reality, the dynamics of uh, relations within Turkey and what role the media played to create this kind of collective unconscious that uh, with which we grew up in with regards to uh, who the media positioned as terrorists. So like when we were growing up in Turkey, all the media said was that Kurds were terrorists. So when now we were the ones being accused of being terrorists, it made you think about the extent to which, you know, media, what the role media played in creating this uh, understanding of who is who in the nation. Can video activism bleed into propaganda? Yeah, I mean, obviously we all have access to the same technological tools. Yeah. And so obviously, depending on intent, um, it, this can be the case. I mean, obviously it can be used as uh, propaganda. But I guess like if you think about what propaganda does, it's to, it's selectively, um, I mean, presents information in a selective way to advance a certain agenda. Mm-hmm. Whereas video activism fills in the gap left open by mainstream media. So I guess the difference could be understood in terms of power relations and the control of means of production and distribution. But as I said, video can be used by, you know, Anybody. Yeah, anybody with any kind of intention. I mean, when you type video activism on Google, actually, the first thing that comes up is like an Israeli video activist, uh, I guess, like group, but it's sponsored by the Ministry of Interior of Israel. So when you have that kind of power and that kind of institution behind you, what kind of video activism are you really doing? Who is speaking? Okay. So really, in that case, the the border is really more between video activism and just um, state-sponsored yeah. news. Yes, I mean it has a lot to do with power relations and who control controls the means of distribution and the means of production, where it's going to be diffused, what kind of danger is there of censorship? I mean. Yeah. yeah, you have to look at it in the broader context of uh, power relations. What was your experience like during the protests? I was really scared because uh, it was the first time I came face to face with the police and police brutality. 
uh, I thought we might die because that's what tear gas in your lungs makes you feel. But at the same time, I felt great strength at seeing so many people finally coming together against uh, Prime Minister Erdogan. And I was surprised at how long it lasted and how long people stuck together um, as opposed to going back to their normal lives. Mm -hmm. I really thought uh, we would be able to overthrow him because that many people protesting for that long and that visually and verbally, uh, I just figured there's no way a leader can you know, overcome that and still stay in power when you have so many people who are saying no to him. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen, unfortunately. He was re-elected president last weekend. Um, so that was my experience. And, I, and I, even after the protests dispersed and uh, everyone went back home, we organized a lot of forums in our neighborhoods to see how we could take those extraordinary conditions and apply them to our day-to-day -day life so that resistance would not be just this, you know, exceptional thing that you do for two weeks and then let, let go of, but to have resistance as a form of living, uh, as a form of living that would lead to change on a more um, long-term period. Mm -hmm. How long were you out there for? For the whole, like the whole two weeks that the occupation continued. And then when the park was evacuated, I stayed in the region to go out on the street because the protests on the streets were still going on, even though the park itself was blocked. So I'd say like a month, a month and a half, the energy was up there. That must be quite impressive. Yeah, Something it was so much bigger than you. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But it's really disappointing when you look back at the five years and how quickly Erdogan adapted himself and learned how to use social media and, uh, you know, and to fight back, basically. So with, with domestic video activism, how much of... How far do you want it to reach? Like, do you want it to, to be more international or is domestic enough? Yeah, I think it's very important to reach out to an international audience and to have a platform of support amongst these uh, activist collectives mm -hmm. because they're all operating under the same risks. Risks, So I think that they have a lot, of, lot to share in terms of the tactics that they employ to film in dangerous conditions as well as to protect themselves from detention, violence, threats, uh, etc. Video activists in Turkey, I mean, I've been working a lot with them. So in that sense, I have been able to provide an international platform to explain their activities. I've provided uh, subtitle support for their videos. Mm -hmm. But because it's different in each context, uh, there needs to be a more uh, interactive platform for all these experiences to come together and so far there isn't one and one of the reasons is also because of language because some of these activists themselves don't necessarily speak English so mm -hmm. that's why it's good to have a relations with I, I guess like academics who are also active pr practitioners like myself mm -hmm. but this needs to be 
this needs to come together in a more systematic way. What role do translators have when they are sh trying to share a, a message outside of domestic spheres? Yeah. Um, what role do translators play? Um, well, I mean, you know, subtitling the images for one is a good thing. A little blurb before yeah. uh, that image is diffused, giving context as to what is happening is also good. Um, and then I guess the, the method of diffusion is also, of like broadcasting is also very important. Yeah. Uh, I guess like on YouTube you can have playlists and things like that. So dividing up the videos of um, each uh, political struggle into like amongst itself. So it's better archived mm -hmm. and anyone looking for that information can go to that playlist and yeah. see all the videos relating to that specific uh, political struggle or environmental struggle, social struggle. This is, I mean, all, kind, all types of struggles. Um, so in that sense, yeah, translators are important to in order to reach out to wider well, What about publics. in terms of, I mean, okay, look, political rhetoric can be nuanced and complex, and meaning can be lost from one language to another. Um, does that happen? Like, no, I think, like, Gizu was the biggest instance of uh, this uh, struggle to reach out to a wider audience, mainly because in order to get the word out because the Turkish media wasn't getting the word out. So it was up to us to get the word out to an international audience. So at least it would be, I guess, broadcast, the events would be broadcast on international news channels. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a lot of uh, input there to explain in detail what exactly the people were that were on the street were out there doing. Um, so... In that sense, at that moment, the context wasn't lost. The same goes for the case of Nuriye and Simi, who are two uh, educators who were, who were protesting for a year, then were on a hunger strike, then were imprisoned. And there a lot of international solidarity came from that, mainly because Seyri Sokak, which is a video collective based in Ankara, documented their day-to-day -day struggle and their demands on a day-to-day -day basis. And a lot of solidarity came out from that. What are the costs of activism, considering the current political climate in Turkey? Yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you can be detained, you can be arrested, you can be, your life can be threatened, you can be be beaten up, uh, you can have your equipment broken, you can have police come into your house and search for something because they don't need an excuse. We're in a state of emergency. We have been for the last two years, and it doesn't seem like it's, you know, uh, going to be lifted. So under state emergency laws or decrees or, uh, and, and, you know, the police is free to do anything that they want. So any form of intimidation goes. Um, and in some cases, even, I mean, two years ago, a video activist was detained and there wasn't an official there wasn't an official reason for his detentions and so until he was arrested he had to wait in detention and that lasted mm -hmm. for 4 months you know and at the moment i mean he still records uh protests in the city that he lives in but he's returning more to documentary filmmaking as opposed to uh 
a video activism where he would be out on the streets on a more regular basis. Knowing the risks, why do it? It's a matter of consciousness, I guess. Like, it's not fair that some people are overseen or are uh, stigmatized or labeled in a certain way just because they're not happy with the way government is operating. And I guess it's this fight for justice and that you want solidarity because you don't think you're doing anything wrong and you have the right to live under the same conditions as every other citizen in that country. So, so you do it because, you know, subconsciously you, you, you just, you need to fight for the right cause. What's the right cause right now? In Turkey? Oh God. <laughs> well, the problem is like, when the results of the election came on Sunday night, like I voted Sunday morning, uh -huh. and then I got on a plane to come to Amsterdam for a conference. So I wasn't in Turkey when the results came through and everyone was depressed because Erdogan got 52% of the votes in the first round uh -huh. of the presidential election. So I'm not, I, so, and I haven't read all week the political analysis that have been done since the election. So I'm not really sure. Uh, what the right cause is at the moment, but really, yeah, and life is a struggle, and there will always be something you believing that you believe in that you will have to fight for. So, whatever that is, I'm sure when I go back, I'll I'll get back to it. You're a dual EU and Turkish citizen. You like and need your freedom of speech. Why not leave? It's not better anywhere else. I mean, there's always going to be repression and there's always going to be some sort of injustice anywhere you go. So you'll find something to fight for or a cause that you believe in that is being wrongfully treated wherever you go. You know, it's not that Italy or like any other uh, country in the East or the West doesn't have its problems. So I'm just at the moment fighting the ones that are in my immediate environment and that I believe in. Um, if the context changes, you know, maybe I'll be freer to do certain things, but other groups still won't be. So, it, it yeah, it won't change uh, on, depending on the context. It's just... Uh, do the risks scare you? Yeah, they scare me. I mean... I had a bit of trouble just doing this work academically uh, and my university stopped funding my work because they found the content too risky, as they put it. So yes, I mean, once you're on this, in the spotlight, then if they really want to get you, they'll find a way to get you. Uh, so in that sense, of course I'm scared, but... I don't want to be one of those people who just shuts up and pretend everything is okay because it's not. And there are so many people who are unable to shut up because it's a life or death situation for them. You know, I don't want to be one of those people who turns a blind eye to injustice. During Gezi, if people had been indifferent to what we were living, then we would feel alone and hopeless and all of that.
what it's the same thing for any other group putting up a struggle. If people are indifferent to their struggles, then, you know, it takes on a form of hopelessness. And I guess I just have empathy and I believe in certain causes and I believe that they need to be fought. What do you hope to achieve? Change. Thanks for listening to Not That Original. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and feel free to share this podcast.